Welcome to Three Thoughts On. Today, I am excited to begin a series dedicated to the very important topic of addiction. My guest today is Hilary Phelps. From the beginning, Hilary was an overachiever. She was a straight-A student and the fastest swimmer in the country for her age group, until age of 14, when she took her first sip of alcohol. From that moment, she was hooked and spent the next 15 years drinking and feeling empty, lost, and hopeless. At 29, Hillary checked herself into rehab for substance use disorder. It wasn't just about putting down the drink, but about changing people, places, and things in her life that ultimately caused her to use alcohol in the first place. Hillary kept her recovery and sobriety quiet until she celebrated 15 years of continuous sobriety in June of 2022. It was then she realized we only are as sick as our secrets and also realized her mission and purpose wasn't to stay quiet, but to help those healing in private and keep going by sharing her recovery and healing journey out loud. Hillary is a speaker, an addiction recovery advocate, writer, and a holistic wellness coach. To me, she is an inspiration and a friend. Her mission and purpose is to help other women find their voice and heal from anything that is holding them back from finding their purpose. This episode was recorded over a month ago, but due to technical difficulties during the recording, it took me a little while to get it released. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now, Hillary Phelps. Welcome to Three Thoughts On. I'm delighted to have Hillary Phelps. Hillary, how are you today? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you doing? I am doing well, recovering from this uh, exciting weekend that we had uh, in Maryland. <laughs> it was such an exciting and fun weekend. It was long, though, wasn't it? I mean, and we joke about this, like, I feel bad. I can't, you know, our friend Charlie moved for 31 hours, so I feel bad complaining about the fact that it was hot and I'm tired because he was going the whole time where... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot harder for him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So could you please uh, uh, tell the audience, who are you and what is it that you're passionate about? It's mm, a loaded question. <laughs> Multifaceted. No. Um, so I, you know, I, as my job, my day job, I say is a publicist. And so I love helping companies amplify their message um, by giving them a microphone to, um, you know, share what they're doing or exciting things that are happening with the media and therefore other people. Um, I have the luxury of working with really impactful brands that are doing big things or making you know, positive changes in the world. So I'm really grateful for that, you know, but my passion, you know, one year ago, I, opened my mouth and started sharing out loud about my recovery story. So this year I celebrated 16 years of continuous sobriety from harmful drugs and alcohol. So, you know, on June 8th of 2007, I checked into a treatment facility um, because I couldn't stop drinking. I was a wine drinker as a blackout drinker, which meant every time I put alcohol in my body, I wouldn't remember what happened. And so, you know, last year I started sharing pretty, um, pretty much, I shared a lot of my story and then that's continued over the last year because, you know, after COVID and, um, there were a lot of women, there's a huge increase in female 
drinkers. You know, there's a 300% increase in um, females who were drinking that had young children at home during the pandemic. There were 42% increase, a Harvard study found, of um, women after the pandemic became heavy drinkers, which means four or more drinks on any occasion. And the numbers were just skyrocketing. But also what I saw or what I found, you know, I work with Ashley Addiction Treatment in Maryland, which is where we were this weekend, that, you know, they were saying the numbers hadn't changed. There were still two and a half men, you know, two to two and a half men to every one woman who was seeking treatment for their substance use disorder or addiction. And that was mind blowing to me, you know, because at 15 years at that point, I felt that there was still a little bit of shame. Like I, that's why I didn't share because I was worried about what people would think of me. But what I realized was that there are women out there that have one week, one day, one month, one year. And if I was still feeling shame, I could put myself in their shoes because I remembered what it felt like for me at one year, one month, one, you know, one day, um, and one year. And so I wanted to be, I didn't want women to go through what I did 15 years ago, 16 years ago, when I didn't feel like a lot of women were talking about um, struggling with substance use, you know, because I think what we see a lot in the media is that portrayal of the old white man drinking under a bridge with a brown paper bag. You know, there's so they're really sensational stories like our friend Charlie Angle. His story is, you know, just over like. I literally, every time I see him, like, Charlie, and I know you're going to have him on the podcast, like, Charlie, how are you alive right now? Because <laughs> his story is just mind-blowing. And those are the stories that I felt, you know, that I was hearing. And so, you know, as a 29-year-old that was drinking, you know, two-plus bottles of wine a night and blacking out, I was like, well, I'm not a problem because those people are the ones with problems. The people that they're talking about are the people in TV or the people in the media or in movies, you know, leaving Las Vegas, you know, when a man loves a woman, like stories like that. So I didn't see myself in those characters. I didn't see myself in those people. And so I stayed out drinking. And so what I wanted to do was to show people that, you know, drinking wine and blacking out does qualify for me, you know, was a qualification for, as a, you know, identifying as a person with substance use disorder or addiction. And that was okay. You know, like you didn't have to get to the point of being homeless or getting multiple DUIs or you know, losing your friends and family because you just, you know, had stolen all their money for drugs and alcohol. I mean, there are so many paths that, you know, we take in in this disease. Um, And I also wanted to tell people that it's a, it's not a decision. It's a disease. Like I did not, you know, did not choose in the sandbox at three years old that this was a path I wanted to take and lead, you know, into addiction and and struggle with, um, with substance use. So, a very long answer to say that is primarily what I'm passionate about and just helping women, like helping women heal, you know, because I think in general, we're all healing from something. You know, we use external stimulus or external things like drinking or sex or gambling or shopping or food to fix something that's going on inside of us. You know, we want to look for that to numb out or to ignore those feelings. And so I wanted to be able to give back like other women had given, you know, helped me and I wanted to be able to pay it forward and help other women who are experiencing that same, that same feeling. And just to let them know that there's hope on the other side and um, that there's a solution. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing. There's a lot there. I'm going to try to unpack that and, and, uh, and, um, that was a lot. (laughs) No, that's great. No, thank you so much. So one of the things that, um, you said uh, 
something there about, you know, being a disease. Mm. And I think that a lot of people still to this day don't see it as such, uh, which is a little bit unfortunate given all the science that we have available mm. today. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, somebody once said that, told me once that, you know, anything that you can't willingly give up is an addiction, right? And in the case of substance abuse or substance addiction, it actually becomes a, a, a mind-body type of problem, right? Because your body biologically becomes mm -hmm. physically dependent. Mm -hmm. um, and in my first episode of the podcast, I talk about the human mind and how that, the, the mind can tell things to the body and then the body can tell things to the mind. And you, you, you can end up in this endless loop where if it is a substance that you crave, at one point... The mind may be asking you for it, but at another different point, the body may be asking you for it because of that of that um, chemical mm -hmm. dependence. Mm -hmm. um, in in your case, as you go look back at, at your years where you were struggling with this, was it more of a mind type of need versus a body type of need, or was it both? How was it for you? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I'd say probably a little bit of both, but it was mostly mind, right? So we say that, that it's a spiritual condition, you know, so it's, it's, it's lacking spiritual for me, I can speak for myself and, but you know, in the, in the programs, we, in the rooms, we say, um, you know, it's just based on our, we have one day sober based on our spiritual condition, meaning, um, I'm not the center of the universe. You know, there's something greater than me, whether we choose to call it God, universe, spirit, higher power, a doorknob, like there's something, you know, that's, I'm not, I'm not it. Um, and I think, I mean, if I had to say one over the other, I'd say it was probably 55, 45, right? Like physical condition, 45, 55 was the spiritual condition, meaning mindful. Um, and I had to learn to break that loop. Um, I've also heard someone explain it in a really powerful way that it's a dopamine, you know, that, that, um, social drinkers, you know, social drinkers may come home and they can say, I want, okay, I'll use an example. So my best friend on her 30th birthday, I was sober at the time. Um, we were having a party for her and I was like, I'll drive. I'm sober. You have fun. Like you just do you, I will drive. And at the end of the night, she's like, well, I'll just drive us home. I'm like, but it's your birthday. And she's like, I had half a glass of champagne and I just really didn't want the rest. What? Who does like what? It's your birthday. It's your thirtieth birthday, nonetheless, and you just want to have a glass of champagne. How did you? She goes. It got warm, and I didn't taste good. I'm like, as an alcoholic, I would have drank her warm champagne and everybody else's floaters after everything else was gone. Like, I seek that out because my body is telling me, you know, like I want more. But it's also the only tool I have in my toolbox. And what I mean by that is, it's the only thing that I would go to in any situation. So for a celebration, for sadness, for disappointment, for depression, like whatever it was, that was it. So I didn't phone a friend. I didn't go for a walk. I didn't do any of the other things. It just became the thing I went to. And so someone described it as someone with this chemical dependence called addiction and alcoholism. Um, their dopamine receptors take on that addict, that alcohol at a much higher rate. Meaning my friend that I just described, she may have a glass of champagne and it might bump her to it, you know, a 10 Maybe, you know, but me as an addict, I have that glass of champagne and it is a hundred times greater than what she's experiencing. So I want more. Like I always want more. 
I don't want to be baseline, right? Like I want to be out of this world or numb. <laughs> and so I will constantly chase that, you know? So I think it was a two, it's, it's definitely, um, a physical craving and then also the emotional craving. But when I stopped and I put down the alcohol, um, and I got went to treatment and got sober at that point, it became 100% mental and emotional. Um, you know, I, because the physical desire for, for alcohol was lifted and you'll hear that, you'll hear people say that, or you hear people say like, you know, luckily that craving was lifted for me when I put down the drink, the physical craving. And then everything from that point forward was the emotional and the mental, the spiritual, um, you know, loop that I had to fix. Um, but it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely a, a mind and body addiction, which makes it, you know, which makes it really hard. And I think the further down the, you know, the further down the ladder we go, meaning the, you know, the more time we spend in, in active use, um, it makes it harder because we stop seeking other things that make us happy, like relationships or food or sex or a shower. Like the things that I say, you know, people who aren't struggling with this disease do just on a normal basis. An addict will start letting go of all of those things so they have more time and energy for their substance until it gets to that point where we are homeless living under a bridge or we have lost our family and friends, or we did wrap our tree or our car around a tree with a DUI or found ourselves in jail. Like it doesn't get better for an addict or an alcoholic or someone with substance use disorder. It continues to get worse. There's at no point when it'll just turn around and I'll wake up one day, you know, I say like be able to drink like a lady like I'll never be able, you know, like that was always the desire right? <laughs> to be able to have like one glass of wine and be social, but that's not who I am at my physical core. Like that's not my genetic makeup. <laughs> my genetic makeup is as much as possible, as soon as possible, as, you know, as long as possible until I just don't remember anymore. So let me ask you a question. You, 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 you travel around the, the country, you know, you give, you give talks mm. and you meet with people. You're, you're you're an inspiration for many, you know, but, you know, because of your story and because of how you've um, you overcome what you overcame. Has anyone? I mean, do you see it for yourself, or have have you discussed this with anyone? Where that line is, or maybe it's not a line. Maybe it's like a a zone where one crosses from being a quote unquote social drinker into now an alcoholic. Like, do you remember looking back? at that moment and it, it is there a moment or is it something that is just always within day one right so it is like you have that it is like your body gets warm and the lights in your brain come on from that first sip and you're like oh my gosh this is euphoria and you for me I chased that euphoria I'm like this feels good I want more of this so therefore I drank more alcohol you know, to chase that feeling. And, um, that continued and eventually, you know, physically your body can't process that much alcohol <laughs> that quickly. And so, you know, I'm drinking, so then my body blacks out and I shut down, but eventually what happened to me was, um, there was a night right before I got sober, right before I went to treatment where I, um, and I recently shared this on social where I drank two bottles of wine by myself And I felt nothing, not buzzed, not euphoric, not happy, not nothing, right? Like I couldn't feel it. It stopped. 
So I walked across the street from my apartment and went to a hotel bar. And I sat down, and I had six glasses of wine. The bartender's like, we're closing in 30 minutes. I was like, cool. And I drank six glasses of wine in 30 minutes. Right. And my, my defenses, they were the little ones, you know, the little ones that you get, they're not like the big, beautiful goblets that you get in the red wine. And it was like the little ones. And so drank six of them. Nothing happened except I went home and got really sick. And in that moment, it feels like your best friend failed you. And I, which is the only way to describe it as, you know, as someone that was in active addiction, I was like, my best friend failed me. It stopped working. This tool is broken. Like, what do I do now? And you'll hear people talk about that saying that all of a sudden it just stopped working for them. And that's frustrating because for so long, for 15 years, I chased the next high, the next euphoria, the next excitement, like, and eventually it all ended in blackouts. And so I chased the numbness, you know? And so people say, why did you drink? And it was to feel good, but also to numb at the same time because I actually didn't want to feel. And so it's the most profound and confusing thing to someone that doesn't struggle or manage this because it's like, just stop. But you can't just stop. And I've heard people say, and you alluded to this a little bit in the beginning, like it's a disease. It's not, you know, I said it's not a disease, not a decision. But people say, well, you chose, like you chose to put that wine in your mouth. You chose to, you know, and it's, I mean, look, if we don't all make choices, like people would be the healthiest people on the planet, right? Like everyone would eat vegetables and not smoke and not, you know, do all the things that, but to some at some point, like those things feel good. Right. And we want to feel good. And, um, it was just something that I could never do safely and something that, um, never gave me the relief that I wanted. No, that's interesting. And, and there, there is a whole debate that I am very passionately getting into with this point of, you know, what is a choice and the whole concept of free will, et cetera, et cetera. And there's, of course, neuroscience is advancing so much, and they talk about there's experiments where you, you know, they wire you up, you know, and you mm -hmm. know, to, to measure your brain waves, and they figured out in the latest study that I read, uh, they figured out that if they gave an individual two choices, uh, A and B, both of which are appealing to the individual, and before the individual becomes aware of A versus B, the brain has already made a decision. Mm -hmm. so it's about uh, 700 milliseconds before we become aware. Mm -hmm. The brain has already made a decision. So that question is like, well, do I really have a choice when, when my body is actually making decisions for me unbeknownst mm -hmm. to me? Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a, a topic for a different, uh, well, isn't that, do you remember the marshmallow test or the marshmallow, is that what it is? The marshmallow experiment from the 70s? No, I don't. Do you, do you remember that? So I think it was in the 70s. So a doctor, a researcher would come in, there'd be kids and they'd give them a marshmallow and they'd put a marshmallow in front of them and they'd say, you can have this now, or if you wait five minutes, you get two. I'm going to walk out of the room. And how many children chose the instant gratification of having one in that moment versus waiting for two? It was very small. And I forget what the predictability was for later in life, like whatever that characteristic was or that, um, it was like, I don't remember, but yes, I mean, look that up. It's the marshmallow test. That's very interesting. Like we split decision and most of it was based on the instant gratification. Exactly. Exactly. Let's go back to, uh, something that you said in the beginning, um, hmm. 
that I thought it was very interesting is this idea of, of shaming, you know, where they said, you said two to two and a half uh, men over every woman that actually mm-hmm. seeks help. Am I getting that right? That seeks help, yep. you know, from seeks addiction. help, seeks treatment. Mm-hmm. In your experience, two questions. Why do you think that is? And what can we do to improve that? How long do we have? Um, <laughs> one, I don't know that the, <laughs> I don't, I mean, look, as a woman, I know that I carry the weight of a lot on my shoulders, right? Like as a single mom, as an entrepreneur, like there's a lot going on. I don't always have time to check out, to get away. And so I think it's a very challenging for women to, um, let go of their responsibilities, whether it's by choice or whether it's lack of support to get away for 30 days. And so I think that's one. I think we need to cut women a little bit more slack. And I think that we need to give them the grace that we, you know, afford. Um, and look, I said to you at the beginning, like, I am not like an angry, an angry feminist. that's like, man, ah. but I do think there's a little bit of disparity when it comes to like, when it comes to that. And so I don't know that women are always afforded the grace to do that. I also feel like women are, um, from my experience and what I've heard others share in the room is there's a lot of shame that comes with addiction and women specifically drinking, even in, you know, when, you know, the, the 12 step program was, you know, created in the 1930s, it was all men. There were very few women. I think that there's, you know, there are two different ways. Like it manifests in shame in women addiction. And I think it manifests as anger in men. And so while the feeling is the same, the outward manifestation of that same feeling is different in the genders. My experience, my opinion, <laughs> there's no, like, from what I've seen, I know I'm always so like, I don't want to, like, I don't want to, you know, this isn't, this is just my experience. And so I think that a lot of women, which right was true for me at 15 years, I still carried shame with me. And I had 15 years of sobriety. I had been doing this for 15 years, making better choices, um, putting myself in better situations, all of the things, but I still felt shame. And so I think there's just, I don't know, you know, I think more women talking about it and there's so many great women out there now talking about their recovery and talking about, you know, really recovering out loud. Um, and I love this A friend of mine, Jessica, um, Buchanan says this, she says, you know, I recover out loud. So those that are recovering in silence can keep going because I was recovering in silence for a really long time. And there were still weren't a lot of women, you know, there weren't a lot of women talking about it openly. And so I think, you know, to decrease the only way we're going to de the only way we're going to change policy, I think, which is going to impact women in treatment is to change public perception. And the only way we're going to change public perception is to have more people speaking out about it, to decrease the shame so that more people feel comfortable and know that this is, this is a disease and not a decision. So just, we would never shame anybody for a cancer diagnosis or a diabetes diagnosis. We would support them. We would love them. We'd take them food. We visit them in the hospital, all of these things. But in my experience, when someone comes out of treatment, they're like, well, thank God you finally got help. And that's it. I think there needs to be a better community built around people coming out of treatment, whatever that looks like extended care. Extended care is also not built for women. Women can't go away for 90 days. Most of them, they have families, they have kids, they're the, you know, they have responsibilities. Um, and not to say that men don't, I think it's just different for women. And I think that makes it harder for them to seek the treatment and the help they need. So one, I think it's a time thing and a societal, um, the ability for women to get away for that amount of time. And I also think there's a huge still shame and stigma specifically around women. Cause look also like, think about it. We, you know, women, 
take two, a man and a woman. A woman comes home like, oh my gosh, it was a crazy night last night. They're like, ugh, be better. How dare you? How dare you be that promiscuous, right? A guy does the same thing. A man does the same thing. They're like, dude, you were crazy last night. How fun was that? I can't, there's just a double standard. And I think, I don't think there should be when it comes to addiction, right? It's, it's, it affects, it does not discriminate when it, gender, race, ethnicity, um, you know, socioeconomic status, it does not discriminate. And so therefore I don't think we should discriminate when it comes to treatment among, you know, those same um, demographics as well. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I agree with you. I mean, I, you see that you see that everywhere. I see it myself. We, we've made some progress, but there's still a lot of a lot of work to do in that area. Mm, agreed. Uh, you mentioned something in a, in a, in one of our conversations, um, or I think it was earlier, about this culture of drinking. You know, I think you mentioned you said mommy wine culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, tell me more about that. What does that mean? Yeah. So, you know, I think if you, you know, it's funny, right? Like there's these, I think women are taught there's even a budget. I mean, there's a recently, um, something I read that shows primarily that alcohol is targeted towards women. It's marketed towards women. They're the purchasers in the home. You know, they, they buy the groceries, things like that. And so a lot of uh, marketing dollars are allocated towards enticing women. And that's no different in this thing, you know, this mommy wine culture where we're showed on social, we're taught, you know, it's funny. It's like, oh, you deserve this. I mean, there's even this thing called, it's mom water where it's, I don't know, some sort of like vodka thing. And it has the names, Karen, Jane, Susan along the side of it. And it's supposed to be funny. And, you know, like, it's not right. Because women were taught like, this is what you do to escape. Like, this is how you relax at the end of the day. They sell cups that says mommy sippy cup. And for someone that doesn't have a problem that can maybe have half a glass of wine and put it down at the end of the day, maybe that's funny. But for so many women that then struggle to seek treatment and to not ask for help, like, look, women also don't ask for help. Like that's part of it. Like we think we're going to, we can man, we just one more thing, just put it in the tray. One more thing. We can do it. We got this. Don't worry. Thank you. And I'm guilty of that too. You know, I'm like, I got it. Thanks. No problem. I got it. Okay. I'll do it. Sure. And I think we keep doing that. And it's like, we think it's going to go away. And for those five moms that get together in the playground and drink wine while their kids play, maybe four of them can go home and not have any more. But that fifth mom, it, and my, that's not an accurate statistic. That's just an example I'm using. That fifth mom may go home and have two more glasses of wine that night because she can't stop. And so I don't, I don't think it's funny. I think we're, we're, you know, there's just this whole culture around it. That's not only harmful for women, but for someone that struggles with addiction and drinking, it's also harmful for their children. You know, and I've heard stories about, um, we recently did this really beautiful round table of women and it was some women were in recovery. Some women were, um, sober curious. Some women were social drinkers. I don't know that anybody identified as an active user. Um, but they were saying, you know, in the playground that they would hear mom say, Oh, I gotta go home and have a drink because of you. You're so much I'm like, I can't, my heart broke. I, I can't imagine internalizing that as a child. Right. So we don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's, you know, having, just thinking that like I, my mom has to use a substance to deal with me or manage me. And there was like, this is a really crass thing. And there was a meme that also went around. It's like you would, if someone said to you, 
Mommy has to do coke to deal with you. People would be blown away and floored. But because it's wine, it's legal, and it's socially acceptable, it's funny. You know, and there's, um, I was just talking about to someone about this. Like, and our whole culture is built around that. Our whole culture, let's go grab a drink. Let's get a drink after work. Let's go to happy hour. Let's do, you know, drink beers and grills. Like, whatever it is, like, that's what it's built around. And it's, there's studies now that show there's no amount of alcohol that's actually good for you. You know, there's a study out of Canada that said that, like, it's a toxin. It's a carcinogen. Like, there's no benefit. What do they say? Like, red wine is good for your heart? Well, like go walk a mile. So is that, you know, I mean, there are alternatives where the repercussions or the, um, of drinking that wine or drinking that alcohol is so much worse than, than just walking. And it's, it's what we're sold. It's what we're sold. It's what we're told. That's right. And that's good. And it's not, and there's, you know, it's just, it's, it's sad. Well, you know, that is a, an excellent point because I have had those conversations, you know, I'm a, I'm a social drinker. In fact, I'm, um, mm-hmm right at the point where I'm pretty tired of the drinking altogether. And, um, it's, mm-hmm. it's getting in the way of my, of my health goals right now. You know, I, I've pushed myself mm-hmm. to, to higher and higher, you know, health goals. And now I, I'm at a, I'm plateauing because of the occasion mm-hmm. of glass of wine or whatever. So, but it's interesting, the amount of pressure, social pressure. I've had numerous conversations Mm-hmm. Uh, where you, I told people, you know, I'm just not drinking anymore or not today or not for a week or not for however long. And, mm-hmm. oh, no, so now you're going to be the healthy one. Ah, this and that. Oh, alcohol is good. I mean, there's 15 different comments, types of comments or categories of comments that come along with that when in reality, and I tell people this all the time, you know, science, the science on this is 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 quite clear, just like you said. Um uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Lustig out of uh, UCSF has three videos on YouTube on how the body processes alcohol and sugar and other things mm-hmm. and all the harmful effects. It's very clear. There are no benefits. Um, there is only mm-hmm. detriment. But it seems like people, they don't want to see, you know, the average person doesn't want the truth. They just want to hear what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even for... Or someone who you know, can stop drinking at any given point in time, that I don't get that rush. I actually, when I drink, is because I like the flavor of it, of certain things. Mm. Uh, I'm the exact. Me too. <laughs> well, exactly. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. I mean, I'm not kidding, but yes. It's, um, I get that. I don't, I, I don't change. You know, I, I don't become a different right. person. It's the same person. And I, and I never, you know, yeah. never over, overdone it. But even for me in a social situation, it's difficult. Because there are certain people that just then all of a sudden look at you differently. It's like, well, now you're, you're, you're trying to be, you know, the healthy one and so forth. And it's like, well, why aren't you, you know, or why is it so problematic to change the perspective on what this is doing to the body when it's so crystal clear? So I can only imagine, you know, you know, that pressure magnified times N, Right. Like you said, for mm-hmm. for the mommy who who is struggling, who's got a lot on her shoulders, and who's got all kinds of of, of balls that are being juggled all at once, um, to have on top of that that internal need 
that social pressure as well and not as much help because of the shaming. It's like everything gets compounded and it makes it, you know, a hundred times worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like what I found too is that, you know, the people I was hanging out with that had those questions about like, why aren't you drinking could either very publicly or very quietly have their own concerns about their own drinking, you know, like, well, maybe I'm drinking too much. And then someone in their group or their friend or someone they hang out with socially all of a sudden decides they're not going to drink. They're like, well, wait a second. Should I examine my drinking? Not something they would say out loud. And I'm not saying this is the case with your friends, but um, that's what I found when I stopped drinking is that the people, because all of a sudden they were losing the the one that they could point to, right? Because if I'm drinking to a 10 every night, they can be like, I'm not as bad as she is. So I don't have to look at myself, you know, right now. And then I remove myself and I stop drinking. And all of a sudden they're like, wait a second. Now I'm the one drinking it to the 10 in my group. Maybe it's not to the level I was, but you know, when you change a habit or you change it, you know, a, a routine that's so ingrained in maybe who you, who I was, you know, maybe as a social drinker, who you were, it causes the people around us to look at themselves and say, well, wait a second, but do I need to examine that? And a lot of people look, I mean, we know this, right? Like it's hard to change. It's hard to, to improve, to be better, right? It's really hard to make those, those changes that impact our well-being and, um, consistently and consciously. And so, if all of a sudden we're in someone's face, like we're not doing this anymore, it's really uncomfortable for them. And so what do they do? It's the fear, right? They're like, why are you doing that? Come on, you can have one. And you know, for you, Raphael, you can have one. You just choose not to, but for someone, you know, and that's amazing. But for someone like me who cannot have one, you know, it's like, you have to like defend it. And if there was a diabetic who didn't want to order dessert, we would never shun them or we would never ask them why we would never say, come on, you can have one bite. It's just your blood sugar. Don't you have insulin for that? We would never ask them that or shame them, but if, or, you know, or even have a question about it. But if someone chooses to not have something like alcohol, people all of a sudden are like, come on, you can have one. And you know, I had someone say the other day in a very loving way who I adore, she's like, it's been 16 years. Are you sure you can't, I mean, maybe you can have a sip, right? At this point, it's been that long. And she genuinely didn't understand. She was genuinely not pressuring me or genuinely not trying to like stir anything up. And I said to her, I'm like, maybe, maybe, but you know what? Like I've worked really hard these last 16 years to get to a place where I have nothing, but that's not, not nothing, but like I have more self-love now and self-confidence than I did 16 years ago. So I'm going to hang out here. And if that means that I don't have to drink, I'm okay. Cause I figured out how to do it for this long <laughs> where there's no guarantee if I put a drop of alcohol in my body that I'm going to come back to this point. And it's more likely if I start drinking or drink, you know, consciously by choice, I'm going to lose everything in my life. I'm going to lose my son. I'm going to lose my business. I'm going to lose my family and friends because all of a sudden, everything that was so important to me, alcohol is going to usurp that. And it is going to be my top priority all the time. That's most likely what's going to happen. So I'm going to choose <laughs> to wonder, <laughs> you know, can I maybe, but I choose not to because I like the space I'm in now. Oh, I think that's great. That's great. So the title of this podcast is three thoughts on, you know, so this is, you know, hopefully the first of a, of a series in the topic of addiction. Like I said, I'm, I'm going to have Charlie next week. Mm -hmm. So he'll have his story, but what would you say three things that you would, you, you would like people to know yeah. about 
addiction based on your experience and, and, and the people you've uh, encountered along the way? One is it's a disease, not a decision. Two is my worst day sober is a thousand times better than my best day in drinking. And three, there's a solution. There's a way. People have done it before. They've, um, meaning, meaning to stop drinking and it's, it's more beautiful than I can imagine. And that sounds cliche and like a hyperbola and it's, you know, people like, Oh, roll your eyes. But, and I never thought that when I was drinking, I'm like, what do you mean? I'm no fun anymore. What am I going to do my birthday? How do you spend new year's Eve without drinking? Like all of those thoughts, but it was just fear. It was fear of the unknown. And I, and I love this, that faith and fear are both unseen. We can't see either of them. And so when we come to the fork in the road to choose one, we can keep going with fear and worry that it's not going to be what we thought, or we can have faith that there's a life in front of us that's better than anything we could have imagined. And I continuously choose faith that doing the right thing and the best thing and the thing that feels good and the thing that is for my greater higher self is the one that I'm going to continue to choose, even if I have fear, because faith is always going to outweigh the fear. That's wonderful. That's a great way to, to wrap this up. Thank you so much um, for your time. Thank you. For sharing your story, uh, for this wonderful event this past weekend. I had a great time with you and Charlie <laughs> and Alexander and Greg. It was a great... Oh, my I, I have to tell you, I was, I was telling this to Charlie on the way as he was dropping me off at the airport yesterday. I... Yeah. Um, it was such a wonderful, warm experience to be with all those folks Um, that I met that I, you know, didn't know. And that was so welcoming, you know, the, 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 mm -hmm. the love and the positive vibrations, if you want to call that was, was everywhere. Every mm -hmm. single person I met. Um, I, I, I don't have a story to share because I, I, I haven't, you know, had the, the struggle with, with addiction, but it didn't matter. It was, I, I can, yeah. I can probably point maybe, Uh, one other situation where I felt so lovingly welcomed by a complete group of strangers. And it was so wonderful what you've done there. You know, of course, the Ashley folks over there uh, is beautiful. And I, I can't wait till next year to continue to support you guys. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's something, you know, and I've said this a couple of times in Lake Nona when, you know, when we first met the Lake Nona Impact Forum, um, A handful of panelists across different conversations said, you know, everybody looks, which is all, we need it. We need sleep. We need good food. We need water. We need exercise, right? But the one thing that people aren't talking about that is imperative to longevity and health is community. And what I love about the Penguin and what I love about the folks at Ashley, when we all come together, it is a group of people who, and in sobriety, it's the same thing. It's surrounding yourself with these people. The Penguin is just exemplified because it's everybody there. It's trying to be, it's a group of people who are trying to be better today than they were yesterday. And that's the only benchmark. There's no level of perfection. There's no desire to be the best. It is just being better than we were individually the day before. And collectively, that resonates with everybody there because it's just everybody just trying to do the best they can and having no judgment or no, you know, just no judgment and, and or expectation. And it's just such a wonderful and beautiful community. Last year was really wonderful. This year is even better. I'm so excited for the next year, 20, 32, 32 hours. Godspeed, Charlie. <laughs>
Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. Community is super important. It's one thing that I, I try to work very hard mm -hmm. on. And I, and I was just discussing this. I said, look, you know, nobody asked me, what do I do? Yes. Not a single person asked me, what do I do for a living? And I found that so refreshing because usually that's the second or third question. Or talk politics. You know, when I meet someone new. Or, it's or like, talk politics yeah. or anything. We were just sharing and enjoying each other's company and supporting Charlie mm -hmm. and It was great. So I, I commend you guys, you know, and the Ashley folks over there for what you've done. Thank you. And I can't <laughs> wait to to do it again next year. I, I'm going to definitely run a lot more next year. It's a lot, but oh, yeah, it's such a great event. Thank you for coming and supporting it. And, and thanks for having me today. Well, thank you so much. You um, have a wonderful day. <laughs> thanks, you too.